Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you so much for your kindness that you have shown to us to draw more and more of us into your kingdom, into your family, that by your Holy Spirit, you speak to us through your word to encourage us, to correct us, to lead us in the way after everlasting. God, pray that we would receive from you today with grateful hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to start in a kind of unorthodox way, uh, if that's okay with you. Um, if it's not okay with you, it's going to happen anyways. But, uh, but I want to start by having you close your eyes, if you would. Could you close your eyes for me? And the reason why I want to have you close your eyes is because I'm going to share with you a story. It's a true story, and I want you to try to picture this story uh, using your imagination um, as I describe it to you. So the setting is about 3,000 years ago. It is in the hot, humid climate of the Middle East. A five-year-old boy named Maribal is at home sitting on the floor in the main room. As he is playing on the floor, there is a knock on the door. His nanny rushes over from the kitchen and opens the door, and there is a messenger who is panting and out of breath. Through his gasping, the child overhears the messenger telling his nanny that this child's grandpa, the king of Israel, and his father were killed in a battle against the country's arch enemies, the Philistines. Panic breaks out in the house. They are weeping and grieving over the death of grandpa and dada. But they're also gathering together. The nanny is gathering the children together to run away, to go to a place of hiding because the Philistines who have killed the king and the heir to the throne surely are going to come after their children. As they are running, the five-year-old boy, Maribal, falls behind. And so the nanny stops and picks him up and starts running with the boy in her arms. As she is running, she trips and falls and lands and crushes the boy's feet. She gets back up quickly and continues to run and cries and screams come from the little boy. They finally get to their hiding spot. And as they weep over the death of dad and grandpa, they discover more bad news that Maribel's feet are badly injured. As the months go by, it becomes obvious that Maribel will never be able to run again, maybe never even walk again. As the boy grows up, he moves to a very obscure region on the outskirts of the kingdom. It is an area called Lodabar, which means barren or without pasture. It is a wasteland where few would search for anyone. To be honest, it's a place where he can eke out an existence until he dies. And in agrarian farming society, he has very little to contribute to his family or his community. There are no wheelchairs for him or accessible ramps. And so he is completely dependent on others around him. Many in the community see him as a has-been or as a never-will-be, who's merely taking up space and resources. Perhaps Maribal views himself that same way. Instead of going by the strong name Maribal, which means the Lord contends, he is now called Mephibosheth, 
which means the mouth of shame. Mephibosheth is a broken man. He is broken physically in that his feet are now deformed and he can't walk or run or live a, quote, productive life. He is broken emotionally because he has lost his father and grandfather at a young age. He is broken relationally because he is seen as an unproductive and unuseful member of society who is a burden, not a blessing. He's also broken spiritually as he questions the purposes and the goodness of God given his current estate of affairs. Maribal, who's now Mephibosheth, is about 20 years old. And again, he's been relegated to the outskirts of humanity, and he is broken physically, emotionally, relationally, and spiritually. Maybe you can relate to this young man, Mephibosheth. You are broken physically. Your body doesn't work the way that it used to. You walk around the house, and you smell like Ben Gay. You're broken emotionally. You have experienced the loss of a loved one and the heartache and pain and suffering that goes with it. You're broken relationally, cut off from family members who have hurt you, betrayed you, and maybe even abandoned you. You are broken spiritually, wondering why God would let so much suffering into your life. You are broken physically, emotionally, relationally, spiritually, and you wonder, just like Mephibosheth did, does anyone even care? What hope is there for Mephibosheth? What hope is there for you in the midst of brokenness? In today's passage, we will discover that the hope that we have in the midst of our pervasive brokenness is the overwhelming kindness of God. You can now open your eyes. If you would, please open your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 9. It is page 260 in the Red Bible. Again, if you don't have a Bible, you'll need it. Feel free to go grab one from the back, or you can grab one up front here. Uh, Just, again, to remind you of where we have been, 2 Samuel 5, David is is anointed as king over all of Israel. Chapter 6, David brings the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem to restore their worship of the Lord God and intimacy with the Lord God. Chapter 7, God makes a covenant with David, promised to bless the king and his kingdom forever. Chapter 8, God starts to fulfill that covenant promise to David by expanding uh, his kingdom and the kingdom of the people of God over all of the promised land where they are now administering justice and equity for all of the people of the kingdom. Now we get to 2 Samuel chapter 9. And Israel is enjoying a time of peace and prosperity. It is about 15 years after the death of King Saul and his son Jonathan the father and grandfather of Mephibosheth. And so we're going to go through the entire chapter today, but let's just start by reading the first three verses of 2 Samuel chapter 9. 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 1. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, And they called him to David. And the king said to him, are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? 
Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. Let's pray. Oh, Lord of God, we come to you a broken people, broken physically, emotionally, relationally, and spiritually. We come into your presence this morning seeking your kindness. Show it to us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I did not plan this out. I don't think there is probably a better passage in 2 Samuel to preach on the Sunday before Thanksgiving. Today, we have the great joy in our brokenness of contemplating the overwhelming, transformational, undeserving kindness of God. It is the kindness of God that has made King David a man after God's own heart. And it is the kindness of God that has made King David in this chapter a conduit and representative of God's own heart. And so in this passage, there are three things that we will see about the kindness of God. The first is this, is that the kindness of God is a committed covenantal kindness. Look with me at verse one. It says, and David said, is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's Sake. Again, if you're unfamiliar with the story, King Saul was the first king of Israel, and he was jealous of David. He hated David. He tried to murder David on multiple occasions, and his son was Jonathan. Jonathan loved David very much. They were best friends. And unlike his father, Jonathan was a godly man. Jonathan not only knew, but surrendered and celebrated that the Lord had made David, not Jonathan, the next king of Israel. And so about two decades before the chapter we're reading today, Jonathan makes a covenant with his friend David. And he says this in 1 Samuel chapter 20, verse 15. And do not cut off your steadfast love. So this is Jonathan speaking to David. And do not cut off your steadfast love. Let's pause there. This word steadfast love in 1 Samuel chapter 20 it's the same Hebrew word used in 2 Samuel chapter 9 for kindness. And it is the word chesed, okay? Chesed. It's great for clearing your throat, but it's also a really precious word found throughout the Old Testament. It is chesed. And so he says, and do not cut off your steadfast love or kindness from my house forever, meaning from my descendants, do not cut off your kindness. When the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David, from the face of the earth, and Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies, which happened in 2 Samuel chapter 8. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. Later on in that same chapter of 1 Samuel chapter 20, before these two best friends part ways for many, many, many years, we read this, and Jonathan said to David, go in peace because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord saying, the Lord shall be between me and you and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And so David had made a covenant commitment to show chesed, love and kindness to Jonathan's descendants. And now in 2 Samuel 9, we read in this peacetime, David is seeking to fulfill his 
commitments to his covenant. But the problem is David does not know if there's anyone left from the house of Saul and the house of Jonathan. And so we get to verse two. Look at verse two with me. It says, now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And they called him to David and the king said to him, are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the hesed kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. Again, Lodabar means without pasture or barren land. It is on the far northeastern side of the kingdom of Israel. Verse five, then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. You know, I love a phrase here in verse three that David wishes to show, quote, the kindness of God. Now, in order to show the kindness of God, David first must know the kindness of God and have experienced the kindness of God. But what is the kindness of God and how does it differ from normal kindness? How does it differ from human kindness? Well, the way it is different is that human kindness is typically a conditional kindness. I will be kind to you as long as you are kind to me. This is the type of kindness that is often shown between brothers and sisters when they are growing up, right? They're kind to one another, but as soon as one is cruel, all of the kindness goes out the window and all of the kindness comes flowing out of their mouths and their fists. It's typically the kindness between husbands and wives. They're kind to one another until one of them is not kind and then the kindness goes out the window. It's typically the kindness between friends. I will be kind to you, you will be kind to me, but if you betray me, I'm done with you. That is the kindness of man, but it is not the kindness of God. The kindness of God is a hesed kindness. When you look at this word, in Hebrew, this word hesed throughout the Bible is translated in many different ways. Of course, it's translated as kindness as in this chapter, but it's also translated as mercy or loving kindness or steadfast love. You see, the kindness of God is different than the kindness of man because it is a committed kindness. It is an unconditional kindness. It is a covenant kindness, not a contractual kindness. It is a kindness and love that cannot be broken, even though the recipient of this kindness might be very broken. Let me give you an example. Robert McQuilkin had been the president of Columbia Bible College and seminary for 22 years. Under his leadership, CIU made advancements in accreditation, faculty development, growth in graduate and seminary programs, and increased their radio ministry and expanded the campus facilities. McQuilkin was without doubt a powerful and influential man for Christ. In 1990, when he was at the top of his career, he had a major decision to make. His wife, Muriel, had Alzheimer's that had progressed to the point where she needed constant care. Here is McQuilkin's resignation speech. He says, I haven't in my life experienced easy decisions making, easy decision making on major decisions. But one of the simplest 
and clearest decisions I've had to make is this one. Muriel is now, uh, in the last couple of months, seems to be almost happy when with me and almost never happy when without me. In fact, she seems to feel trapped, becomes very fearful, sometimes almost terror. And when she can't get to me, and, and there can be anger, she's in distress. But when I am with her, she's happy and content. And so I must be with her at all times. And you see, it's not only that I promise or covenanted in sickness and in health till death do us part, and I am a man of my word. He says, it's not that I have to, it's that I get to. I love her very dearly. McQuilkin, this, this great leader in the church, resigned to care for his wife, Muriel, full-time in 1990. In 1993, she stopped recognizing him. She didn't know his name. McQuilkin continued to care for Muriel, washing her, changing her, and feeding her, and above all, loving her for the next 10 years until she passed away in 2003. Friends, this is not the kindness of men. This is the kindness of God. McQuilkin had experienced and been transformed by the unconditional, committed, covenant kindness and love of God. And it led him to show such kindness and love to a woman who did not even know his name the last 10 years of her life. You know, such stories grip our heart because this is how we want to be loved. We don't want to be recipients of a conditional, contractual kindness and love that is here today and gone tomorrow. We want to be the object of a committed, covenantal, unconditional kindness and love. David wants to show the kindness of God to this son of Jonathan. So much so that at great cost to himself, David sends out a search and rescue party. He sends away some men to go into this foreign, not foreign, but far away territory to go and to find Mephibosheth and bring him back to the king. You see, the kindness of God is not only the kindness that David seeks to show to Mephibosheth. This is the kindness that motivates David to seek out Mephibosheth in the first place. Mephibosheth did not seek out David, but David sought out Mephibosheth, not because of anything that Mephibosheth had done, but as verse two says, and this is very important, he does it for the sake of or because of Jonathan, whom David made a covenant with, and who was faithful to the Lord even unto death. Friends, I have good news for you today. It is the Hesed committed covenantal kindness of God that he shows to his people. For when we were broken beyond repair, we did not seek out God, but his kindness, by his kindness, God sought us out to pour out upon us his unconditional, committed, covenantal kindness, not because of anything we have done, but because of his covenant commitment to Jesus Christ. It is for the sake of Jesus who left the heavens above to come into this spiritually barren world on a search and rescue mission to find us and to pour out upon us his hesed, covenantal, committed love today and forevermore. What does this passage show us about the kindness of God for broken people like you and me? It is a pursuing, committed, unconditional covenant kindness. Praise be to God. Second thing, 
that we find out about God's kindness is that it is a surprisingly excessive kindness. Look at verse 5 with me, 5 through 7. Then King David sent and brought him, that's Mephibosheth, before the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear. Notice here that Mephibosheth gets to the throne room of the king and he is not excited, he is not happy, he is not joyful, he is not glad. He is deathly afraid. He falls on his face before David as if to ask for mercy. He identifies himself as David's servant saying, listen, I am not a threat to you, David. Even David knows this. As David responds to him and says, listen, don't be scared. Don't be afraid. Don't be fearful. Why do you think Mephibosheth is so afraid? Why is he deathly afraid to come into the presence of the king? Well, it's the same reason why his nanny picked him up and ran so many years ago. You see, when someone takes over a kingdom, usually a high priority for that new king is to kill off the king and the king's son and the king's grandson and great-grandson, to king off, kill off all of their lineage so that there will be no threat to the throne. So that if people are unhappy with the king, they don't have a person to rally around to try to overthrow the new king. This was why Mephibosheth was hiding in a barren region of Israel. He was afraid that if he was found out, he would be killed by the new king. This was the custom of the day. And that's why in 1 Samuel 24, again, many years before, 20 years before or so, after David spares the life of King Saul, Saul says this to David in 1 Samuel 24, verse 20. He says, and now behold, this is Saul speaking. I know that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. He didn't want this, but he knew it was going to happen. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me. Because this was the custom of the day. You kill the previous successors. And that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. Remember, King David is an awesome military commander. If you read last chapter, if you remember from last week, he just killed thousands and thousands of the enemies of God. He's the one who slayed Goliath. He was a hero who had songs written about the thousands of people that he had killed. And so when Mephibosheth is carried into the presence of this awesome warrior king, unable to run away because of his deformity, Mephibosheth is deathly afraid, almost certain that he has been carried to his execution. But then comes a wonderful surprise. Verse 7, and David said to him, do not fear, for I will show you chesed kindness for the sake of or because of your father, Jonathan. Mephibosheth probably thought this was a trick. Mephibosheth would have been flabbergasted at the idea. Not only is David going to let Mephibosheth live, which is gift enough, but David is going to show Mephibosheth a surprising, excessive hesed kindness. David goes on and he says, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. 
David makes two excessively surprising promises to Mephibosheth. The first is this. David promises Mephibosheth the land of Saul. In that time, even more so than today, property means power. Property means prosperity. Property means provision. Property means prominence. David is giving this land of his grandfather Saul back to Mephibosheth to restore his human dignity and provision so that he can take care of himself and his household. Now, as we know, Mephibosheth cannot work the land because he is disabled. And so David makes provision for that as well. Skip to verse 9. We'll come back to verse 8 later. It says, then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, who, by the way, was probably already working the land of Saul, and said to him, all that belongs to Saul and to all his house, I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandsons may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. In essence, what David is doing here is he is making Mephibosheth the owner of this land, the owner of this property. And he has these hired servants that work the land for him, but he gets, he gets a good fair, fair, fair portion of the profit from the land. And so David is make provision for Mephibosheth. He is restoring dignity, Mephibosheth. And so that is David's first promise of surprisingly excessive kindness. The land of Saul and the benefits of it go back to Mephibosheth. The second promise of surprising excessiveness is even greater than the first. Verse 7. Again, it says, and David said to him, do not fear, for I will show you chesed, kindness, for the sake of or because of your father, Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you, you shall eat at my table always. David reconfirms this promise to Ziba further down in verse 10 when he says, but Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. You know, I am the, the youngest of five children, uh, and so growing up, whenever we had Thanksgiving uh, or a family reunion, I always ate at the kids' table. Uh, even when I was a teenager and in college, I ate at the kids' table because all of the, all of the seats at the adult table were taken up by my older siblings and the adults. I don't think it was until I was engaged to Trish that I actually got to sit at the adult table simply because they were too embarrassed to make her sit at the kids' table. It was a great privilege to move from the kids' table to the adult table. Some of you will feel that pain this Thanksgiving, I'm sure. But where you eat, someone's, who you are gathered with, the table that you eat with says something about their value of you, of how much they appreciate you and love you and care for you, how they see you. I mean, have you ever seen who the President of the United States has over for dinner at the White House? Regardless of, of what president is in office at the time, he has his family there. He has over presidents and kings and princes and prime ministers and chancellors. He has over war heroes and civil heroes. He has over power and powerful and influential people for dinner. But do you know who he does not seem to have over for dinner? He doesn't seem to have the disabled guy from rural Wisconsin over for dinner. And he certainly does not have that guy over for dinner the rest of his life. But this is what David does. 
The king's table had the best food, the most prominent people in the kingdom. These people got to enjoy the presence of the king and they got to have the ear of the king and they had a relationship with the king. The table of the king was reserved for two people, was reserved for the family of the king and commanders of the king. And now an unrelated crippled man from the destitute regions of the kingdom. Mind you, not once, but every day, the rest of the king's life. I mean, it is as if this guy won the lottery and never even bought a ticket. Remember, this is a very broken man. Mephibosheth, though he was coming to the king's throne room, thought he was coming to be eliminated, instead received the surprising, excessive kindness of God through King David. And see how Mephibosheth responds in verse 8. Verse 8, he says, And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Mephibosheth knew his position in society and in the kingdom. He was considered by others and maybe even by himself a waste of time, a waste of resources, a waste of space. He saw himself as a dirty, dead dog without hope. And now he is humbled and overwhelmed by the surprising kindness of the king. He is dumbfounded. Friends, there is a day coming when Christ returns that we will come into the throne room of God. It will be a day that will be awesome and terrifying wonder. We will get a glimpse of the king as, as Isaiah did in Isaiah chapter six. Isaiah chapter six, the prophet Isaiah, a godly man in the promised land, has a vision of the king that is coming. And here's what he shares with us, what, what, what he saw in the vision of the throne room of God. Isaiah chapter six, verse one says, and the year that King Uzziah died, I, the prophet Isaiah, saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Can you picture this? Above him stood the seraphim, these, these crazy looking creatures. Each had six wings with Two, he covered his face because the holiness and brilliance of the glory of God was too much for them to set their eyes upon. And with two, he covered his feet, and with two, he flew. And one called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth, the whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. Can you imagine the awe and wonder and terror in this throne room? And I said, woe is me, for I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. Again, this is probably the most godly man in all of Israel. He says, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. See, anyone who gets a clear glimpse of the holiness of God will be overwhelmed by their own brokenness, their own dirtiness, and their own dead dogness. Anyone who sees the holiness of God clearly and sees their sin will think, I'm dead meat. I should be put to death. I am without hope. Woe is me, a man of unclean lips. But then the passage continues with the surprising kindness of God. In Isaiah chapter six, it continues, it says, then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar and he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away 
and your sin atoned for. You know, this week as I was preparing my sermon in Panera, my eyeballs started to turn red and sweat, and I had to do my best to keep it together so I'm not sobbing in the middle of a Panera. As I considered all the kindness of God towards me and pondered this question, why would the awesome king of glory pour out his kindness on a dirty dog like me? Who am I that God would be so kind to me as to give me food in my refrigerator? Who am I that God would be so kind to me to give me a loving, caring church family? Who am I that God would give me a wife that loves him more than she loves me? Who am I that God would give me four precious children to raise, to mess up, to apologize to, to raise, to mess up, to apologize to? Who am I that God would give me my very next breath? Who am I that God would send his one and only son on a search and rescue mission on the outskirts of humanity to find me on the fringes of the kingdom? Who am I that the king of kings would show his surprisingly excessive kindness to die on my behalf, to reconcile me to himself? Who am I that God of the universe would take away my guilt and atone for my sins upon the cross? Who am I that he would invite me to his communion table week after week after week to feast with him and on him? Who am I to be given a permanent seat at the marriage supper of the lamb for all eternity? Christian, God's kindness to you is a pursuing, committed, unconditional covenant kindness. But it is also a surprising, undeserved, overwhelming, excessive kindness. Finally, we see the kindness of God is to be a brokenly enjoyed kindness. Up to this point, we've really been focusing on, on, on God's kindness to us and on David's kindness to Mephibosheth after receiving the kindness of God. But now I want us to be instructed by Mephibosheth. Look at verse 11. It says, Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commanded his servants, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table. And then get this. <laughs> like one of the king's sons. Like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son, this is great news, whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. And then maybe my favorite verse of the whole chapter. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both feet. Could you imagine walking in to the dining room of David? You see David, you see his sons that look like him. You see these generals and these war heroes that are, that are thick and strong. And then you see Mephibosheth. This man who doesn't look like David, who certainly is not strong, who is crippled. And you may think to yourself, one of these does not look like the others. And yet there is Mephibosheth enjoying the gift of the king, the kindness of the king, sitting at the table of the king to enjoy his presence and his blessings. And notice here in the final sentence, notice how the chapter ends. It says, 
Now he was lame in both his feet. Why did God inspire the writers of scripture to include that detail again? I mean, it's something we already knew. Are they trying to define this man by his deformities? Why do they say it again? Well, I think it is a reminder to us that we don't have to be all fixed up to enjoy the kindness of God. That we can enjoy the constant, covenantal, surprisingly excessiveness, excessive kindness of God in the midst of our brokenness. Are you broken physically, relationally, emotionally, spiritually? If so, I have good news for you today. Today, right now, God has offered you his kindness to enjoy it while you are broken. A couple years ago, the Crocker family started coming to church here at Jacob's Well, and, and Bryce and I were talking one day, and he mentioned to me that, that he and his wife, Cassie, and their family were seeking to adopt a boy from India. Uh, they, the Crockers already have four beautiful and wonderful children, but they felt like the Lord was calling them to adopt a child uh, from India. Here you can see a picture of, of their son, Marin, while he was in India. Uh, Marin was... Uh, was a special needs child uh, in Salem, India. And Marin had no ability to move his arms or legs. Uh, he had no head control or support. He was very weak. Eating and swallowing was very difficult for him, and so he was severely dehydrated and malnourished. At three and a half years old, he was only 14 pounds. He had no routine health care or therapy, although he was heavily medicated. Marn never had a form of communication that he could communicate or express himself, nor did he ever feel the love of a family. Marn was a child, to put it bluntly, that many families probably passed over and did not want. But then in the providence of God, his transformational love and kindness led the Crocker family to adopt him. As they looked and prayed over the various pictures of children that were available for adoption, the Lord confirmed to them, this is your son. And so they started the long process of adoption. They started providing so that the Marin could eat and be cared for. And they went on a search and rescue mission. They flew to India and were able to hold their little boy. You can see here, there's Bryce. Next picture. Go, there's Bryce and Cassie with Warren, their baby boy. If I remember correctly, I think Bryce stayed there for a couple weeks and Cassie stayed there for a couple months to work through all the government issues of adopting Marin. And then they were able to bring Marin home to his new family, the family that God has always intended Marin to be a part of. And if you look here, you can see there's one picture. Go to the next picture. There he is. You know, as you look at this picture, uh, there are two things that are very evident. One is that Marin is still physically broken in many ways, just like all of us. But the second and the most important thing is you can see him enjoying the kindness of God, can't you? God has extended to you his kindness so that you may enjoy it. I'm guessing if you walked in at the Crocker table, you would say one of these is not like the other. And yet one of these sits at the table, not like a son of the Crockers, but as a son of the Crocker family. Church, here is the good news. God does not look at your brokenness and wait for you to become unbroken. 
No, he invites you to the table. He invites you to himself. He invites you to enjoy him and his blessing in the midst of your brokenness, not because of you, but again, because of Jesus. He invites you to come, torn and tattered, weak and wounded, beautiful and broken. He invites you to come and commune with him and enjoy him, not like a child of the king, as in the case of Mephibosheth, but as a child of the king. 1 John 3 says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. Let me end with this. Let me end in an, start with an unconventional way. I will end in an unconventional way. I want to I end by giving you two assignments and then one responsive reading. Okay, Two assignments, one responsive reading. First assignment is this. It's an assignment that you can do by yourself or do with others on your drive home. You can do it over this Thanksgiving time. But the assignment is simply this. I want you, med- want you to meditate on this question. I think I have it printed here on the bottom middle. I do. I want you to meditate on this question this week. How have you experienced the kindness of God? Just think about that. Meditate on it. Journal about it. Pray about it. How have you experienced the kindness of God in your life. Can you think about that? Can you share with others? Maybe talk about it around the dinner table tonight. Talk about it around Thanksgiving dinner. How have you experienced the kindness of God? My guess is your reaction will be like most people's, which is, where do I begin? <laughs> so that's the first assignment. Meditate and consider this question. How have you experienced the kindness of God? The second assignment is this. As you consider the kindness of God towards you, I want to challenge you to show the kindness of God to others. Specifically to others like Mephibosheth, who cannot repay you. The loving kindness of God towards you was never ever meant to end with you. You were not meant simply to be a holding tank, but an aqueduct of the kindness of God to others. And so this week, motivated and transformed by the loving kindness of God towards you in Christ, I want you to seek to show the kindness of God to another person. This may be shoveling your neighbor's driveway. It may be buying a cup of coffee for a stranger at Starbucks. It might be being extra helpful during the Thanksgiving dinner. But how can you show the kindness of God that has been shown to you in Christ Jesus. So those are your two assignments. Meditate on the question, how have I experienced the kindness of God? And secondly, share that kindness of God with someone else or with other people, just as David had done. Finally, I want to end with the responsive reading. As I mentioned, a big word in today's passage throughout the Bible is this word chesed, which can be translated kindness, which can also be translated mercy or loving kindness. And it is celebrated all over the Bible if you're able to do a search over it. But specifically in Psalm 136. In Psalm 136, uh, there are 26 verses. And in all 26 verses, it celebrates the chesed, steadfast love of the Lord. And so we're not going to go through all 26, but probably half of them. And I will read the first half of the verse. And I want you to respond by speaking out the second half of the verse. And as you respond, may your proclamation of the steadfast love of God wash over your soul to remind you that although you are very broken in so many ways, because of Jesus, you can enjoy God's committed, 
covenantal, surprisingly excessive kindness and love for you as a modern-day Mephibosheth. So here we go. You ready? Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who alone does great wonders, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who by understanding made the heavens, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who spread out the earth above the waters, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who made the great lights, for his steadfast love endures forever. The sun to rule over the day, for his steadfast love endures forever. The moon and stars to rule over the night, for his steadfast love endures forever. It is he who remembered us in our low estate, for his steadfast love endures forever. And rescued us from our foes, for his steadfast love endures forever. He who gives food to all flesh, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of heaven, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let's pray. Lord God, we are so thankful for your chesed kindness and love that you have shown to us particularly in salvation through Jesus Christ, but in every way, shape, and form. And the ways that you have rescued us from danger when we were in dangerous situations, to how you show your loving kindness to us through ranch dressing, just mere pleasures to enjoy as a gift from our kind and gracious and loving God. Lord, may we live this week with great thanksgiving, of the kindness that you have shown to us today, yesterday, and forevermore. May we be conduits of that kindness to those that you have around us because you have not blessed us simply to bless us, but you have blessed us to be a blessing to those around us. And so God, may we, may we experience and enjoy and be transformed and then overflow with the kindness of God in Christ Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray, amen.